We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. So if you would follow along as I read in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we, as your people, we want to bring our minds underneath the influence of your spirit through your word. Open our minds to receive truth. May our lives be changed. Lord, work in and through the teaching of your word to conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this passage and for the truth that it contains. May our lives be affected in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a passage about adoption, it's a passage about being God's children, being God's sons, his daughters, being heirs, set to inherit the things that he has for us. It's a passage about relating to God on the basis of grace and being brought into his forever family. It's a passage about family likeness, family resemblance. So uh, some of you, if I had the privilege of knowing your parents, I would be able to perhaps look at you and say, oh, I can see it. I can see your dad or I can see your mom, whether it's in your physical features or in your mannerisms or the way that you carry yourself, right? Um, so my son Hunter, for example, um, is practically a spitting image, not just physically, but, but even our mannerisms sometimes freak me out. It's like I'm looking at myself. We'll do something at the same time together, unplanned, and it's like, that's just weird, right? So people can look at him and say, man, you are like your dad, and then people can look at me now that he's old enough, and they can say, 
that's a hunter thing. And it's like, well, actually, I'm further upstream. Kind of that's how it works. But, um, but yeah, I do see the resemblance, right? I, I remember my brother and I, when, we were, when I was 19 and he was 21, uh, and we got invited by a dear friend of my dad's. Back in the day, my dad and this guy were really close friends. And they were both pastors in South Louisiana. And this guy named Pastor Blunt, Pastor Blunt invited my brother and I to come lead what they used to call revival services. So we were gonna, I was going to lead worship and my brother was going to preach for these revival services out in Hammond, Louisiana. And so we, I don't remember ever meeting this guy as a child. I had heard stories about Pastor Blunt and so he was kind of a household name, but I don't remember ever seeing him or meeting him in person. And uh, so my brother and I, we got directions to the church out there in Hammond. We pulled up. We got there nice and early so we could set up and get everything straight. And we just saw the groundskeeper was there, weed eating, uh, back turned away from us. And we just walked up and we're like, okay, how are we going to get into the building? The building was locked. So we walked over to the groundskeeper and just tapped him on the shoulder. And then he turned around and he took off his safety glasses and he just started to cry. And it became super awkward because we're kind of, my brother and I are having a moment with the, the, the weed eater, uh, groundskeeper guy. And it's like, I don't know why he's crying. Did we do something? Like, what's going on here? And uh, eventually he gathers himself up emotionally and he says, you are Bill Mason's sons. And he had known dad so many years, even as he knew my dad when my dad was 19. He knew my dad when my dad was 21. And he's looking at his spitting image in Paul Mason and Matt Mason, just the resemblance was so obvious, right? Well, in our passage, this is about resemblance. It's about family likeness. It answers the question, what do God's children look like? Growing up to be like our father, what, what mannerisms, what characteristics, what traits does that bring about in the lives of, of Christian believers? And what we see in this passage is God's children look like fighters. They, they fight against sin, uh, he hates sin and, and so do they because they're growing up in his image, right? It's not just that, but God's children, we're going to see here in our text, God's children have hope. They are people of hope. Um, even in the midst of hardship, they still hope in God. So there's this, this family resemblance, right? This passage doesn't describe Christianity as kind of a, a cultural tradition, that you can associate with and you do this thing that Christians do and then you don't do this other thing because you just don't want to do it, right? But it, this text is not about Christian culture or associating with Christian religious traditions. This passage is about inside-out change. It's about real, deep, actual likeness to God the Father because we've been brought into his family through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about life-changing realities. We're talking about the story of grace and how it unfolds in God's children. And it unfolds in three stages in this passage. The struggle is real is the first point. The struggle is real. So Paul is talking at the beginning of our passage about how Christians have power from the indwelling Holy Spirit to fight against sin, to fight against the things that used to dominate our lives, right? So here's the point. If you're taking notes, sin is present and we fight it. It's a likeness. It's something that happens when the Holy Spirit moves into the life of the believer. One of the greatest theologians in church history was a, a man named John Owen. And John Owen preached a series, actually wrote a number of books related to this text and preached famously on Romans chapter 8, verse 13, a couple centuries ago few centuries ago. And 
he, he had this legendary remark that lives on throughout church history. When he looked at Romans chapter 8, verse 13, here's what he said. Here's how he summarized it. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That was his way. Just look at verse 13 and you see how he got that. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put it to death, or the old language is if you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Just think about that phraseology that Paul is using here for just a moment. If you live, he says, according to the flesh, you will die. It's not just talking about if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die physically. Everybody's going to die physically no matter how you live. Everybody's going to die physically. So it's not talking about that. It's talking about dying eternally. It's talking about eternal separation from God. If you live according to the flesh, you're toast. You are separated from God forever. So in other words, what Paul is getting at here is if you live like there's no change, maybe there was no change. And, and here's the other thing is the Holy Spirit never moves in and leaves us the same. So if there's no change, there's a problem. Right? If we look like our old life, maybe we never actually inherited new life. Maybe we're not regenerate. Maybe we're not alive to God. The Holy Spirit, he takes us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we were. He's working in us. This passage is a gift to believers, particularly in this part of, of the United States, right, where, where so much that passes for Christianity is just Christian traditions, is a cultural um, association to Christian things, but there's no internal power, there's no transformation going on in the heart. And this passage says, I want to help you discern the family likeness so that you know and you have assurance and so that you don't have false assurance. It's a gift to believers. It's basically saying the Holy Spirit moves in and he is the Holy Spirit. So when he moves in, guess what you're going to start becoming? Holy. That's, what the holy. that's where he's taking your life. It's in his name, and that's where he's taking your life. He's taking you into holiness. He's taking you away from bondage and into freedom. So just look at that word again. We'll just unpack a little bit. If by the Spirit, emphasize that, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this is not some moralism, this is not, hey, um, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Because Christians don't have bootstraps. Christians don't have boots, right? What Christians do have, Paul says in Romans 8, is the Holy Spirit. And that's a game changer. There are things that we could do now that we couldn't do before because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, residing in us. It's this very same apostle, the apostle Paul, who writes to another church, the church of Philippi, in the book of Philippians. And he says these classic verses that are back-to-back -back and almost live in tension in chapter 2 where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God who is at work within you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's not just verse 12, just work and work and work and pull yourself together, but neither is it just, hey, God's going to do the work, God's going to do the work, God's going to do the work. It's 
Work. I need you to work, but not to work in your own strength. Work in the strength supplied to you by the indwelling spirit of God. And that's going to bring about a whole new set of outcomes now that you're not in Adam, but now that you are in Christ and filled with his spirit. So it's not moralism. It is not religious self-effort, but neither is it passivity. Neither is it Holy Spirit, just zap me free from all these sins so that I don't have to do anything. I can just kind of coast down, down river. It's, it's not that. It's actively moving, right? If by the Spirit, you know what that word? You put to death. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christians, um, Christians don't grow by being passive, we trust that God knows how to build a believer. And when God says, here's how I make you strong, this is what the Puritans called the means of grace. So, in other words, God has put in his word and he says, here's what I want. I want to make you strong. I want to make you holy. I want to make you new. I want to make you free. Here's where I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet you in my word. I want you reading it. I want you hearing it preached faithfully. I want you gathering with the saints. I want you a member in a local church. I want you praying to me. Talk to me. Lay your burdens on me. Cast your cares on me. Let's talk, right? So that's how you're going to get strong. It's not to pixie dust falling out of the sky. some mysterious thing. He's saying, I'll meet you in the word. I'll meet you in prayer. And I'll meet you in the church. And I'm going to make you strong. And I'm going to equip you for battle in these places, right? There's, there's so much passivity in Western cultural Christianity, and it's a holdover from bad teaching that prevailed in the late 1800s called Keswick Theology. K-A-S, the W is silent, W-I-C-K, higher life theology. This is where we get the idea of let go and let God. It's kind of just coast down river. You get into that place where it's just going to become easy street. Once you find that place of absolute surrender, it's easy from there on. You can just coast all the way out. No, J.I. Packer, one of the finest theologians in our generation, he wrote a book in response to the holdover of Keswick theology. It's called Keep in Step with the Spirit. It's an outstanding book. And, and in it, he says, the New Testament witness does not say let go, and, let go and let God. It says trust God and get going. It is, it is not passive. It is active. But it's not active in the sense that you're leaning on your own flesh and your own strength. You're leaning on him, but you're making progress, and you are invested, and you are striving, and you are fighting, and you are renewing your mind. You are being transformed. You're in the game. You're involved in this. right? I love what Paul says in verse 12. You see verse 12? Brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. One, one translation, maybe the translation you're using this morning, says we're not indebted to the flesh or we are not debtors to the flesh, which is just to say, Christian, you don't owe your old life a thing. You don't owe sin a thing. What good thing did sin ever bring into our lives as believers? And the answer is nothing. It didn't bring us any lasting joy, any peace with God, any freedom, any sense of purpose, right? Sin did not do that. And so Paul is saying, you don't owe sin a thing. Move along. Don't turn back. Don't look over your shoulder. There's nothing back there. It's you moving forward with Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit. The way forward, Paul would say in other places, the way forward for the Christian is you taking every thought captive to obey Jesus, reining it in and saying, no, you're gonna bow to Jesus. You're gonna bow to his word. This is wisdom. This is beautiful. This is good and this is true. And we move forward with this and we grow and we experience freedom. Sin is, 
is present and we fight it. It's a family likeness. Second, suffering is present and we feel it. As children of God in a fallen world, we know suffering and we experience suffering. He, he uses this language, you see it there, creation is groaning, Paul says. Matter of fact, he's gonna say creation is groaning, we're groaning, the Holy Spirit's groaning. He's gonna use this language of groaning all throughout our passage, which is you just pick up Underneath the text, you get this sense of a Christian worldview. You get this sense that when you look at Romans chapter 8, something's wrong with the world. Something's, something's broken in this world, and we all know it. And creation is waiting for that to change. Creation is personified, obviously, in this passage. And it seems like creation is in on this secret that eventually there's going to be this breaking loose. There's going to be this transformation, this cosmic overhaul, restoration of all things. And that's what Paul is talking about, but he says creation knows, it senses there's something wrong. It's in labor pains and it wants to give birth, but it can't yet. And so it's groaning meanwhile. And then Paul says creation isn't the only thing that's groaning. In verse 22, he says what? We are. The believer. The Christian is, is groaning. I think this is perhaps one of the major reasons why the Psalms have been such a, such a comforting presence for believers all down through history. Why? Because the Psalms are filled with what? Groaning. They're filled with lament. They're filled with tears. They're filled with desperation and cries of agony. And God, I need you. And God, I'm dying. And I, I have no joy. And I'm lonely, right? It's just these songs that the people of God sang in the Old Testament. There was an article written by a great theologian, church historian today. His name is Carl Truman. And he wrote an article many years ago called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And his answer was, they can sing the Psalms. That's what they can sing. Because the Psalms finish our sentences in a broken world. I'll never forget hearing an interview several years ago <clears throat> of a widely recognized worship leader at the time. And they were asking this worship leader about choosing songs for musical worship in church context. And, and here's the comment. We don't do songs that are sad focused on the depths of despair. I know David had mournful songs, so just stop there for a second. What just happened in that rhetorical flourish is she dusted off the entire book of Psalms. There went Psalms. I know David had mournful songs, you know, but we're, when we're in worship, it's really hard to keep the focus on God when we keep singing about ourselves. Songs we have like Rain Down, where we change the words. It said, my heart is dry. Well, my heart is not dry, so we don't want to sing that. We just like singing praise and joyfulness. And I heard that statement, and I, my first kind of snarky thought was, well, how awesome it must be to be you. But here's the thing. It's the church doesn't get to come together and sing whatever it is that you happen to be feeling right now. The, 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 the playlist of the gathered church is not determined by whoever's the strongest, Right? We are called in Romans chapter 12 in this very same letter to rejoice with those who rejoice and what? To weep with those who weep. So maybe a particular song sounds too dark for my season. So what do I do if the song sounds too dark for my season? You sing it with your brothers. That's what you do. You sing it with your sisters. And you do it with all your 
heart. And the other reason you do it, the other reason you sing darkness that's not your own season, but it's somebody else's season, the other reason you do it is it's going to be your turn tomorrow. We only have to live long enough. We will all suffer. I've never met a Christian who would say that the deepest experiences I had with God were when everything was going great in my life. When everything was awesome, that's when my relationship with God just felt so deep and so rich. Now, how many of us could resonate with the sense in which you walked through fire and you came out with a faith that was forged in flames and you couldn't have gotten it some other way. You couldn't have got it down easy street. You couldn't have got it if the ball was always bouncing in your direction. But here you got yourself a trial and you came out and James said, count it all joy because something's going to happen and it's going to happen right here in the ashes. Right here in the midst of the pain. That's why the church sings songs like his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in what? The whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Believers taste suffering. Believers know suffering. It is par for the course in this fallen and broken world. But the story of grace is not a story that ends in despair. So point number one, the struggle is real. Number two, the future is certain. The struggle is real, but the future is certain. Look at verse 18. For I consider that, here's the sufferings, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going, not might, that is going to be revealed to us for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. And he goes on to talk about the future day in verse 21. This day where the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So you see that language in verse 19, anticipation for God's sons. So God's sons there, it's a, it's a reference to all Christian believers, male and female. Just like the church under the metaphor of the bride of Christ is not just a reference to the women. <laughs> it's, a, it's a metaphor for the whole church. Men and women alike, in one sense, are submitted to joyfully under Jesus Christ, right? Saved by him. He has washed his bride with water, right? So that imagery works. This imagery works as well. The whole church, men and women, we are all sons because in the Roman culture in the first century was sons who inherited the family wealth. And he says in that sense, all the men, all the women, all the children who believe in Jesus Christ, they're all sons. They're all getting the wealth that is laid up for them in Christ. So you might ask the question, I thought that the moment a person believes they are justified by faith, made right with God, accepted by God, and adopted into God's forever family. I thought that has already happened, and yet in Romans chapter 8, there seems to be some sense in which adoption is future. Right, so what's going on there? Here's the thing, is if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've turned from sin and put your faith in him, you have already been adopted into God's family, right? That's a forever thing, that's a once and for all thing. But here's the thing, God wants to go big with the ceremony. God wants to, to pipe in the music. He wants there to be some pomp and circumstance associated with this. He wants the, the grand uh, presentation. So I think verse 19 is clarifying. Look again at verse 19. For the creation 
eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Here's, here's what that means. You think about it, because the world doesn't know who the sons of God are. Right? Even if you walk down the street, just pick a street, downtown Birmingham, walk down the street and see all the people, look around. You're not going to be able to look across the, the street and say, there he is. He's a son of God. Look, she, she's a child of God. She's got that light over her head. She's got that tongue of fire or whatever the thing, the sparkles or like an Instagram filter that's just over all the believers, right? No, no, you can't see them with the naked eye. You can't tell who's who. You can't tell who are the royal sons and daughters who have been brought into the noble family of God who call him Abba, Father. You can't see them on the street. You don't know which ones they are. And the apostle Peter, he even talks about how there's a, there's um, a difficulty, there's a pang in this because he says, you are royal sons and daughters and yet all you do is bear the scorn of this world because they don't know who you belong to. They don't know who you get to call father. But he says here in Romans chapter eight, that's gonna change. Creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. J.B. Phillips, classic translation of that verse reads this way. The whole creation, he writes, is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. If you've ever been in, in a room or in a context where there was gonna be um, some powerful or important dignitary or a celebrity passing through and there were crowds of people there, right? And, and what are you doing? You're, you're, you're on tiptoe. You're, you're looking this way. Your neck is craning back and forth. You're trying to be, to find this window where you can see the person who's coming through the crowds. And, and, and J.B. Phillips is saying, that's what's going on in Romans chapter 8 is that creation itself is on tiptoes. Creation is saying, it's coming. It's coming. We're going to see the sons of God. It's craning its neck with this eager anticipation. We can't wait to find out who are they, these children of God. What an awesome moment. And it's, it's not that creation takes a distant, detached interest in this. You see the language there? Creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. In other words, creation is implicated in that pomp and circumstance ceremony. There will be a washing over of joy and glory into the cosmos when God presents and says, so here they are. Here are my children. At the return of Jesus, creation bursts, as it were, into song in Romans chapter 8. God says, these are mine, and creation sings, amen. There they are. When we read the New Testament, we find out that the return of Jesus is going to bring about three of the most glorious prospects imaginable to the believer. The first is this, the struggle with sin will be over. The struggle with sin will be over. You ever just get tired? Tired of the, the constant fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and how nonstop it is the arrows, the darts, the putting on of the armor day after day after day. You just get tired and say, I don't want to armor up today. I want a day off. Right, you ever struggle with sin and it gets you in a habitual kind of way, in an addiction kind of way, and, and, and you have to keep hitting the reset button? And maybe you say, ha, huh, it's been three days since it pulled me down. 
It's been your turn in the calendar. It's been nine days. It's been 20 days. It's been a month since it pulled me down. Oh, wow, I'm seeing victory. And then the perfect storm hits, and you fall into sin and fall into temptation, and now you got to go do that most defeating thing in the Christian life, right? What do you got to do? you got to go roll back the calendar to zero. Zero days of walking in freedom in this area. And the Apostle Paul says, it's not always going to be that way. Romans 8 says, imagine this, imagine a day where Jesus comes back and you look at freedom's calendar and you just keep seeing days go by. Days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and months turn into years and years turn into centuries and the story on every page is freedom. (laughs) Total freedom. Struggle's gone, no more itch, no more perfect storm. Struggle with sin will be over. Second, suffering and grief will be gone. Scripture says on that day that God will wipe away all of our tears and death and sighing will be no more. At the end of the the great Chronicles of Narnia story and series, C.S. Lewis is writing about aspects of the Christian life and there's this kind of denouement at the last battle and the last pages of the book and, and it's been resolved. Evil has been vanquished. And there's Aslan, and he's saying, it's over. It's finally over. And, and yet, he says at the end of the book, he says, and yet, it's only just beginning. Here's, here's what Lewis says at the end of the book, telling this story. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The struggle with sin will be over, suffering and grief will be gone, and finally the glory of God will be seen. The glory of God will be seen. I think the, the pivotal hinge verse in our passage is in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. A dear friend of mine, I've, I've known him, he's known me since I was a teenager He's an elderly man who has been serving Jesus for many, many years in pastoral ministry. And um, it's a really, really tough story. He's shared very little of his story, even with people who are close to him. He's shared very little of his story. What I do know and what he has shared is that uh, his father, he's never known his father. His father abandoned him before he had a chance to even meet him, never showed up in his life. And his mother was abusive, heavily abusive, would neglect him for days, would just leave the house and go off binging on drugs and would just leave him to fend for himself when he was a very, very young boy. Um, He's not a man, this pastor friend of mine, he's not a man particularly given to tears. I've seen him cry a handful of times and I've known him for many years. But if you want to guarantee to see this man moved, emotionally moved in a good way, all you gotta do is ask him, what's the sweetest verse in the whole Bible? And if you ask him that question, what he's gonna do is he's gonna quote Revelation 22, verse four. And tears are, guarantee it, 
tears are going to well up in his eyes and he's going to say the sweetest words in the Bible are, and they shall see his face. We will see him. The one who planned our redemption, the one who achieved and accomplished it at the greatest cost imaginable, and the one who secured it and brought it to our doorstep through God the Holy Spirit. We will see him in his glory. The story of grace finds us in a world of sin and suffering, and it says these three things. The struggle is real, but the future is certain. The future is certain, for we're children of God. The future is certain, for we're children of God. You see verse 15? You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That original word, kradzo, in, in the Greek, in the New Testament, it, it, that word cry, it is, it is the same word that's used of Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane when he's about to drink the cup of the curse, the cup of condemnation. It is not Jesus using his inside voice. It is not Jesus praying in a library. It, you can hear him from down the block. It is a cry from, of desperation. He cries, Abba, Father, is there any way for this cup to pass? That's the same word used here. Jeremy Pierre is a professor at Southern Seminary, a gifted author and scholar. In an article that I read early last year, he relates a, a scary, traumatic experience that he had and that his family had. The opening scene of the article, it has him and finds him strapped in for an MRI and his face is covered in soot and his glasses are cloudy and foggy and he's trembling all over and he says, I can't focus my thoughts and the doctor's talking to me like I'm a child, like I'm eight years old. And he said, I, I just can't pull myself together. And so then that's kind of the opening scene and then he backs up and describes how he got there. I'm gonna read this extended quote from the article. He says, I was in the bedroom earlier that day when an unfamiliar screech made all of us freeze. My first guess was an amber alert telling us to be on the lookout for license plate number such and such. I thought a tap on my phone screen would resume a normal day. But no, it was Sarah, his wife, who screamed, fire. My wife normally operates with two volume settings. Standard volume is for everyday interactions. Urgent is for spiders or perceived injuries of children. <laughs> this scream belonged to some third category. Smoke was coming from the laundry room door next to our bedroom. My most vivid recollection of the room was the pure orange of the flame coming from the dryer, an orange that was alarmingly out of place inside our house. We raced downstairs for the extinguisher, shouting to the children to get outside and call 911. In Two minutes, I was back upstairs, nervously operating a device I'd never used before. The entire tank did almost nothing against the now self-perpetuating fire. I stared helplessly into that prodigious orange, emptied extinguisher hanging at my side. I could no longer linger in the illusion that I could control this. The smoke was now rolling black as oil. Sarah was yelling for me to get out of the house. I was halfway down the stairs when my mind registered a vital point. I had seen the four older kids leave my house with my own eyes, but not our youngest, not our Betsy. I remember being surprised at my own voice as I tore back up the stairs, screaming her name. It was animal. 
It was the kind of wail that comes only from helplessness, only when clawing through an alien atmosphere, searching for what you love. Those moments haunted me as I laid strapped into the MRI machine. My desperate search probably lasted only 15 seconds or so before Sarah yelled that Betsy was with the neighbors. But those 15 seconds changed something in me. They awoke a desperation in me I'd never felt before. The prodigious orange and formidable black had proven to me that I had no ability to control even the most important things in my life, that I was a child. And then he brings you back to that MRI with soot and grime all over his shirt and soot and grime all over his face and, and cloudy glasses. And he says this, strapped into the MRI, I experienced something that has only happened a few times in my life. A single involuntary thought placed itself immovable in the front of my mind. It was like an override of those other thoughts, blocking any of them from entering. I am a child of God. That's the security of belonging. That's the difference it makes when we get to cry out even an animal scream of desperation. Abba, please. Help me. From the midst of groaning, my question for you this morning is, are you a child of God? <laughs> Have you put your trust in Jesus, the one hope of the world? Have you come to know God as Father? Has the Holy Spirit moved in on the inside? Because here's what happens. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're joined to him. In comes the third person of the Trinity. And once he moves in, children start learning something. What do we start learning? We start learning to fight. We start learning to have hope even in the midst of suffering. We start learning that the Spirit carries us even in our weakness. Even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit compensates for our weakness and says, I got you. I'll cover you. All you know how to do is groan. I'll groan with you. I'll make your prayers rise before a God who hears.